And today we are going to be looking at a prayer of Jesus's. If you've been part of the church family for any length of time, you're probably familiar with the concepts of Jesus being Lord and Savior. Many times we even talk about that. Have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? By the way, if my voice this morning kind of cracks up and you could feel... Yesterday, working on the construction site, we all wore earplugs all day long. And I was working with uh, Rick Shunter for a good part of the day, and we had to, like, yell at each other all day long because you can't hear each other with the earplugs on. And every time I was using the power gun, I had to yell, fire, every time I shot that thing and that. So my voice is a little sore today from that. So anyway, that's, that's what it is. I'm not getting sick. It's just from overuse yesterday. Uh, so Lord and Savior, these concepts that we often refer to when we talk about what it means to make a commitment to Christ. Is he the Lord of your life? Meaning, is he king? He's governor, ruler. He's the God over all. He's our creator. He's the one that we bow before. This is what we mean when we say that Christ is Lord. Also, though, we refer to Christ as Savior. And when we say Savior, we are meaning that Jesus is our rescuer, our liberator, the one who has set us free, the one who has enabled us to be in harmony with God. He's freed us from our sins. So Jesus is, yes, Lord and Savior. But one of the other ideas or concepts that is a role that Jesus plays that is not one that is emphasized as much, at least sometimes in our churches, is the fact that Jesus is also priest, high priest. Hebrews says, we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. And one of the main functions of a priest is to intercede or to pray for his people, those that are under his care. And this is exactly what Jesus does in his role as priest while he was here on the earth and also now when he is not here on the earth. We often talk about praying to Jesus, but do we realize that Jesus actually prays for us? Jesus is even now praying for us. Hebrews says, while Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things that he suffered. In this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest. And he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who believe in him. And this description in Hebrews of Jesus praying, pleading, with loud cries and tears is even depicted when we see Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. There, he is described as praying fervently that Jesus was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great 
drops of blood as he prayed. Now this is far different from the priest. A funeral director told me about once when I was in Edmonton. After conducting a funeral in Edmonton in minus 30 weather, that's one of the things when I was there, we would do some very cold burials. And so I just finished this this little burial service, minus 30, we're all freezing, standing around the grave. Um, After we're done and the casket goes in, I come back into the hearse and I just kind of warm up my hands and the funeral director that was driving the hearse looks over and says to me, wow, that was impressive. And I thought to myself, I don't know what I did that was very impressive. And so I said, what do you mean? Impressive. I just did a a very basic burial service. And he said to me, well, I had another burial this morning. And the priest refused to get out of the hearse. In fact, while all the people were standing around the casket, the priest told me to drive the hearse as close as I could to where the people were, and he rolled down the window, and he did the prayer and the blessing outside of the window. Well, see, Jesus is not that kind of priest. Jesus actually gets out into the cold with us. He intercedes, he cares, he prays for us. Again, Hebrew says, Jesus, our high priest, understands our weakness. He understands our coldness. For he faced all the same testing that we do. And yet, he did not sin. With all this in mind, let us read one of Jesus' prayers in John chapter 17. It's a prayer that's often referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer. And when we read this prayer, we will discover which things were a priority for Jesus in his ministry. Which things he prayed and interceded for his people for. So in John 17... After saying these things, Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that he can give glory back to you. For you have given him authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one of you that you have given him. And this is the way to have eternal life. To know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one that you sent to earth. I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. So now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. I have revealed to you the ones you gave me from this world. They They were always yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And now they know everything I have is a gift from you, for I have passed on to them the message you gave me. They accepted it and know that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. My prayer is not for this world, but for those you have given me, because they belong to you. All who are mine belong to you, and you have given them to me, so they bring me glory. Now I am departing from this world, and they are staying in this world, but I'm coming to you. 
Holy Father, you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name so that they will be united just as we are. During my time here, I protected them by the power of the name you gave me. I guarded them so that no one was lost except the one headed for destruction, as the scriptures foretold. Now I'm coming to you. I told them many things while I was with them in this world so they would be filled with my joy. I have given them your word. And the world hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I am asking you to take them out of I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they can be made holy by your truth. And I am praying not only for these disciples, but, for all, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with you where I am. Then they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. O oh, righteous Father, the world doesn't know you, but I do. And these disciples know you sent me. I have revealed them to you, and I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them, and I will be in them. Now, there's a lot in this prayer. In fact, we could easily do four or five week series on the things that Jesus prays about in this prayer. Uh, but we're going to cover it off in one Sunday this morning. And so we're going to be just briefly scratching the surface of some of these different topics. Five areas in particular I want to look at. And the five areas uh, that we're going to look at interweave. They are interconnected like a web. And so though I am going to talk about them in order of one, two, three, four, and five, they're not really a list in so much as an interconnected web. You touch any one of these five and you end up wiggling the whole web. They all intersect and they all work together as hopefully I will portray as well. So let's look at this spider web of Jesus' prayer here. The five areas which we will look at, and then I'll look at them one by one, and then how they interconnect, are that what Jesus does here is he prays for the spread of God's glory. And he prays for his people's protection. He prays for his people's holiness. 
He prays for his people's unity, and he prays for the salvation of the lost, those that don't know him yet. Jesus prays for the spread of God's glory. Uh, this runs through the entire prayer. In fact, the word glory appears seven times in this prayer. And listen to how it is used. Jesus says, Father, glorify your Son, Jesus. For I, your Son, am going to glorify you. I, your Son, Jesus, have brought your glory to the earth. So, Father, bring me back into the glory that we shared before this age began. And then he says, my followers will also bring glory to my name, for I have given my followers my glory. The glory that you've given me, I've given to my followers. And I want my followers to see the glory that you have given me. We notice by all the ways that glory is used in this prayer, that glory is always something given. It's not something grasped. The glory is always being given away. The Father glorifies the Son. The Son glorifies the Father. The Father glorifies the Son. The Son glorifies His people. The people glorify the Son, which glorifies the Father. Glory is always something given to someone else. One online dictionary defines glory this way. To glorify is to praise or to honor something or someone to an extreme extent. It's, it's where we get our concept of worship from. If you like someone, you might compliment them or praise them. But glorifying them takes it to a whole other level. It's worship. So Jesus is pointing out and Jesus is praying that God the Father will glorify God the Son. And Jesus will glorify the Father and make him known to the world. And Jesus will glorify his followers, the church, which is an unbelievable concept when you think about that. And the church will glorify Jesus, which glorifies God, which makes God known to the world. The whole heart of the faith is that it's always pointing outward. It's always others directed. Just as much as we are all about God, in a strange way, God is also very much about us. And this is what the dynamics of love looks like. Love is always directed towards the other. Each partner is continually pointing out the virtues and the great things about the other. Love is an extreme devotion to someone else. When we live this other's type of love life, we find the energy and the positiveness and the purpose and the joy that life is meant to be. When we try to glorify ourselves, when we point it inward, then it's when our lives begin to shrivel up, become self-centered, to become wilted and dying. 
But life is given, life is extended, the more it goes outward. There's probably no better summary for our reason for being than the opening question and answer in the Westminster Catechism, which begins, what is the purpose of life? The purpose of life is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. I love that. That is the best model for life that you can have. Sometimes we forget and we put the period after the purpose of life is to glorify God and forget that when we glorify God, it is the most enjoyable way to live. And that the purpose of life is not only to glorify God, but in the glorifying of God to enjoy Him forever. In fact, John Piper does a little bit of a switch here when he writes this and says, The purpose of life is to glorify God while enjoying Him forever. That is where life is found in giving. It's one of the things I've talked about with Habitat for Humanity. I just... it. I, I come home and I told Nancy, I said, I can't believe how much I just enjoy that. Working with my hands, working with other people, building things, the community, the camaraderie, not only the people from the church that are all there together, but you, you, there's all these volunteers from other places. You get to meet all different types of people, university students and, and retired people and people with very different backgrounds, and you're just working towards a common goal, a cause to build houses for people, to help them out of poverty, and you're giving. That's where... Life is found in this kind of giving to glorify God and enjoy Him forever or while enjoying Him forever. It's what we were created for. And so when Jesus was praying this prayer with the glory, may, may I glorify you, you glorify me, we glorify our people, they glorify you. In fact, Jesus was praying for our enjoyment and our happiness. May my people find life to the full and realize that it's only found when God is glorified. Many of us realize, though, that this is not as easy to do as it sounds. We know it, some of us, in our minds, but to get it into our very being, it can be very difficult. There are many things that compete for our attention. In the world in which we live, there are many things shouting at us and telling us that we should glorify them. That's what advertising is all about. Advertising is all about make this the thing that you give glory to. Sometimes even great things. But when those things become what we are consumed with, what we glorify, what we find or try to find our absolute meaning in, we always become disappointed. Because it is only by glorifying God that anything else truly begins to find its purpose and meaning by putting God at the center of why we are living. And yet, though there are many things in this world that try to grab our attention, try to steal the glory that we are to give to God away from God and to give it to those things, though there are so many of those temptations, Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to rescue you from all of that. 
Instead, Jesus says, I am not asking you, Father, to take them out of this world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. Jesus does not plan to pull us out to safety, but prays that we will be left in the midst of all of these competing things for our attention. And he does for a purpose, as we're going to see. And so because of that is God's plan, Jesus then prays for people's protection. I'm not pulling them out, I'm actually putting them into the battlefield. And so Jesus prays for his people's protection. God, protect them by the power of your name. In other words, may God's authority protect us as we allow our identity to be defined by him. As we live in this world, identifying ourselves by being people who glorify God, may they be protected as ambassadors of Christ. When God's authority comes in our life, we begin to identify as a people who belong to him. We're his ambassadors. For example, because I represent Bethany Baptist, there are certain things I choose not to do. Sometimes when my moral fortitude is not strong enough, being a representative of Bethany Baptist is what carries me through. I represent a certain group of people. I represent a certain things, And so there are certain things I, as that representative, just should avoid, should not do. In the same way, it's not uncommon for companies to search an applicant's social online profile. To figure out how they spend their time. And for the company to then decide whether or not they want this person to represent them. Because they then become a stamp of the company. When an ambassador or an Olympic athlete goes to another country, they go in the name or the authority of that country. They represent their homeland. Their behaviors, even off the field, and the things they say represent their country. And sometimes this can be particularly difficult when you are in enemy territory. And yet, you represent your people. It is important to note here that when Jesus is talking about the world... This is important that, again, we we need to understand these terms, not with our modern 21st century Western dictionary definition of them, but we need to understand what they were meant in the first century, how Jesus was understanding these terms, how the Jewish world understood these terms. When Jesus referred to the world, he was not talking about the physical earth. Jesus here was not a Gnostic dualist teaching that the physical is bad and the spiritual good. And Jesus was not saying, Lord, protect them from the physical realm. 
because it's evil. Protect them from the earth because that's horrible. And may they escape um, from the corruption of them. When Jesus uses the term world here, he is talking about ideologies. He's talking about anti-God or anti-Christ ideologies. Anti-God and anti-Christ ideologies that affect both the physical world and the spiritual world. The war is not between physical and spiritual. The world is against principalities and powers. Notice how Jesus says that the world hates you. Well, obviously the physical earth doesn't hate us. It's people. Notice how when he says to be protected from the world, he encompasses with that and the evil one, who is Satan, who is obviously a spiritual being. And yet Satan is put into the category of the world. So the world, the understanding of it, is all those evil, all of those powers, all of those principalities, all of those ideologies that affect the physical and the spiritual world that are anti-God, anti-Christ. This is what Jesus is saying. Not protect them from the physical world, but protect them from these antichrist attitudes, persecutions, temptations, the evil one, the current world system that is against the things of God. For that is not what we belong to. Those governmental systems are not who we are. They're not who we pledge allegiance to. Back in the first century, it was the emperor. The emperor was seen and advertised to the people as the son of God. And the Christians said, no, that's antichrist. There's only one true son of God, and that's Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. Any other system that says someone else or some other thing is Lord is a worldly system. And it's what we do not belong to. Instead, we are ambassadors. We are representatives of Christ's order against these antichrist orders. And so Jesus prays for our holiness within this kind of worldly system. Jesus doesn't pray for us to escape to a monastery to shelter ourselves from worldly ideologies so that we can be holy. Jesus' idea of holiness is a holiness that is gained within these worldly systems. Jesus prays that God's glory will shine through. He says, make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Jesus says, I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so that they may be holy by your truth. As we spoke last week, holiness comes by abiding in Christ. Abiding in the vine, which is God's truth. We do this by continually being connected with truth, with God's word which happens primarily within community, as we're going to see even with the prayer. Christ's desire is for us to be continually abiding in the truth in his word, not so that we can pass Bible trivia exams, 
or that we can argue with other people that disagree with us, but so that we can produce fruit, which as we said last week is love. As we abide in Christ, we become holy, and holiness is manifested by love. Which is why Jesus then naturally, in praying for our holiness and our protection, prays for our unity. Because unity is the evidence of holiness. Because our love for one another is our holiness, it displays God as a God of holy love. What we are being called to display in this world is the character of God. The nature of a three-person God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who are one essence of love. God's nature is unity. God's nature is love. And that's why Jesus prays, I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. Notice that Jesus prays for our oneness and connects it with God's very nature. He doesn't pray for our oneness just because it's a nice idea. He prays for our oneness because that's who God is. In fact, Jesus is praying that we as community will be like God. Again, Jesus says, I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity. The reason we are called to loving unity is because it is based on the loving unity of the Trinity. Three persons, one God, bonded in perfect love. And we are created in God's image. It's interesting that in the Bible where it speaks about us being created in God's image at the beginning of Genesis, it says in the plural, we were created in the image of God. Male and female. Often we try to come up with theories of what it means to be made in the image of God. And we'll come up with things like, well, we are creative. God is creative. Um, we have authority over creation. God has authority over creation. We have speech. We have language. We have the ability to communicate. Um, God is a speaking God. He communicates. Now, all of these things are true, but we often miss the more blatant point that comes directly from the text, and that is the God's image stamped in the we plurality even God speaks of himself in the plural in the beginning of Genesis Genesis 1 says God speaking let us make human beings in our image God is speaking of himself as a us and as an our and then saying let us make human beings, that's plural as well, in our image, and then it goes on to say, in the image of God, he created them, plural again, male and female, he created them. The image of the one God who is plural, 
a God who is we, is reflected in one human race, which is plural. Human beings, male and female. So in many regards, the image of God is not so much an individual. The image of God is people in the kind of loving unity and harmony that God is. That is the image of God. We, the church, reflect the image of God. God's most basic nature is a community of love. And he created people in his image, meaning he created us to be a community of love. And when people do that, they reflect God's glory. They reflect his holiness. They reflect his love. Because he is a God of holy love. And this is why love is so life-giving, as I said earlier. Because God is life. And life comes from the love that was in the Trinity. And this love that's in the Trinity is the source of life. And so when we reflect that same kind of love which is reflected in God, that's where we also find life. Life comes out of love. And when we love, we give glory to God and we enjoy Him forever. It is for this reason that God doesn't take us out of our broken world systems. But keeps us in them with his protection. Because he wants his image of holy love to be reflected in his people. So that other people can be drawn to him And experience that love as well. Which is why Jesus also prays for the salvation of the lost. And note the key reason. Note the key motivator. The the key apologetic you could say. Of how God calls us to witness to people that don't know him. Jesus says I pray. That they will all be one. Just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And then he says, and may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. He says also, I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. It's our love and our unity that is the greatest witness to the world. Because it's our love and our unity which reflects the love and unity of God. So when people see that with us, they are seeing a glimpse of God. A number of years back, a little book that had a huge influence on me was a book by Francis Schaeffer called uh, The Mark of the Christian. It's only about 50, 60 pages long. And essentially, it's a little book commenting on this aspect of Jesus' high priestly prayer. And what Schaefer writes in that book is, is these particular thoughts. He says, as Christians, 
We are called to love all other Christians in a way the world may observe. This means showing love in the midst of our differences, whether they be great or small. It means showing love when it costs us something. Love is the mark Christ gave Christians to wear before the world. Only with this mark may the world know that Christians are indeed Christians and that Jesus was sent by the Father. Those ideas, that thought has, has, has motivated my thinking and my ministry and the way I approach things ever since I have been impacted by that. That the world will know that Christians, or, 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 or the world will know that Jesus was sent by the Father when Christians display love and unity. That's why it's got to be our number one priority. You can have all the arguments for the Christian faith, but, the, but without love, it means nothing. I remember hearing John Stackhouse speak of a time he took a non-Christian friend to a university debate between an atheist and a Christian. And he said that uh, he was young at the time, he was a university student himself, and during the debate, Stackhouse talked about how proud he was of the Christian because he said the Christian completely demolished and humiliated the atheist and his arguments and his ideas. And Stackhouse thought, man, this is just a slam dunk conversion with my friend that I brought. And so after they went out for coffee and he said to his friend, he said, so what'd you think? What'd you think about you know, what the Christian and how the atheist did and the arguments for both cases and all that. And his friend, and it, Stackhouse said this, shaped his whole approach to apologetics ever since. Stackhouse said that this um, non-Christian friend said to him, even if that Christian was right, the last thing I want is to become an arrogant jerk like him. He may have won the argument, but without love he lost the person. Without love, it amounts to very little. We still have a ways to go in the church when Christians feel, as it just happened a few weeks ago, the need to send hate mail to Pastor Andy Stanley when he made a comment in a sermon that unity among Christians is more important than theological agreement. I think that comment sounds very much like what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. 13. Jesus said you will not know them by their Jesus said you will know them by their love not by their theological arguments and agreements. It was Jesus' prayer that we love because love is what shows God's character best. And even if you disagree with Andy Stanley, hate mail, threatening letters, seriously? Where does that even come from in the name of Christ? This was Jesus' prayer for his people through history, including us today. This prayer was not just for the disciples. This prayer was for us. We are in this prayer. Did you notice the words when Jesus said, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. That's all of us. Anyone here that has believed in Jesus Christ as Lord, Savior, and priest, 
because of the disciples' message that they have passed on through the generations, Jesus is praying for us. Sometimes I think it would be a good practice to not always be praying to Jesus, but just say, Jesus, please pray for me. Because he does. He prays for us. I am praying not only for these disciples, but also I am praying for all who will ever believe in me through their message. It's a web in which all the parts affect the others. The glory the Son and the Father give to each other results in the offer of salvation to all. When people find that eternal life God's glory extends to them and continues to manifest itself to others as they begin to love and have unity across borders, across lines of enemies, across cultures, across generations, across styles, across attitudes. The Christian faith is a common table of all people, slave, free, men, women, Leaders, servants, Jews, Gentiles, coming together around a common table saying we're all one. Because there's only one Lord, one Savior, one priest, that's Jesus Christ. He makes all the rest of us brothers and sisters in him. We're all equal. It's love. It was unprecedented. The communion meal, when it first came on the scene in first century Rome, was unprecedented. Slaves and masters don't eat at the same table together. Men and women don't eat at the same table together. Jews and Gentiles don't eat at the same table together. That which some of us take for granted today was revolutionary in the first century. And still today in many places of the world, even here, it's revolutionary still. When we realize that Jesus takes down the barriers. It's a unity that shows the world that God is love. So that they are drawn into God's glory. As they begin to show that love to others. Now if a web is too confusing. Maybe to wrap this up a circle will help. Although certainly the interconnectedness of a web I think is a better illustration because they all pull on each other in a multifaceted number of ways. But a circle would look like this. And that is God's glory draws people to him. And this makes people holy by their unity. And their unity gives God glory. And that glory draws people to him. And that's just how it works. We're continually glorifying God by our unity. And when people see that, they see God, and they're drawn to God, and then they join in giving glory back to God, which then draws more people to God. It's Jesus' prayer, which ends with the ultimate purpose of why he came. He ends by saying, then... Then, when this prayer is being lived out, then, Father, your love for me will be in my people, and I will be in them. Jesus' ultimate prayer is the intimacy of oneness between us 
and between us and Jesus, and between us and Jesus and the Father, love. Let's pray. Father, we often sing, they will know we are Christians by our love. And that is, Lord, our strongest sign, our strongest fruit, that we are abiding in you. Lord, we pray that we may be a people of love, first and foremost, because by doing so, we're simply acknowledging you as the God of love and giving glory to you. Lord Jesus, may we glorify you and enjoy you forever. Amen.